William, we are about to do some serious time travel. Like major time travel, Staline, all the way back to one of my favorite eras for creativity, community, and freedom in New York City, the early 90s. Can we just call it a season of love? We absolutely can. <laughs> 525,600 minutes. At least we could probably run lines from Rent all day, and I could probably sing them. We both could. That would be so much fun. But we're not going to do that because we actually have an original cast member here today, and she is iconic. It is Daphne Rubin Vega. And she paints an incredible picture of New York and the early days of Rent and how Mimi, her unforgettable character, came to be. Her audition story has everything. Oh my God, everything. I mean, it has drag queen makeup lessons, freestyle girl groups, teen club shootouts, spandex, fishnets, Patricia Field. I mean, that's a pretty epic list, right? <laughs> but most importantly, I think it's also about Daphne's understanding about what only she could bring to the production. And in many ways, how the life she was living at that moment fit the life of the musical so perfectly. No, completely. I mean, William, this all happened 30 years ago. And it's still all so vital and so meaningful. It's the past, and yet it feels full of possibility in some way. To be clear, there's nothing like Rent. And to be clear, there is nobody like Daphne Rubin Vega. Let's bring in Daphne. So Daphne, we thought it might be fun to, before we get into the big audition, to talk a little bit about New York in the 90s, in the early 90s. What were you doing at the time? Were you performing? Who were your friends? Describe New York, the New York scene in the early 90s. The early 90s. I had already started singing in a girl group <laughs> called Pajama Party, which was a freestyle group, and I'm going to try not to do the air quotes because I was the only Latina in the Latina freestyle group, in the Latin freestyle group. Celine is called. a big freestyle oh, fan, I by the way. Freestyle. Okay, do you know Pajama Party? Do you know the song Yo No Se? So you were the lead singer in that band? I began as a background vocalist, and I um, ended up being a lead vocalist. Because the group had gone through so many warm bodies, you know what I mean? Like we had, it was just a, we, yeah, we, there were like six of us in, in total, just, you know, we graduated. We were a little bit like menudo in that sense. Um, <laughs> Where they kick you out when you have like, when you go through puberty. No, no, for us, it wasn't puberty. It was literally a number on the scale. It was like, put the muffin down and <laughs> keep it going, keep it going. But, you know, speaking of Latin freestyle, the lead singer, her name is Jennifer McQuilkin, and she's a beautiful blonde. And then there was there was Susie, who was the brunette next door, you know, quote unquote. And then yeah. there was me, who was um, what I used to like to call the ubiquitous street element, right? <laughs> I needed to be there. I needed to be there in the girl group to sort of, you know, make black and brown people not, you know, just say no, which, 
<laughs> they did anyway. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> like we were a one hit wonder that made two albums. So that was the early 90s. The, the early 90s, the girl group, we took it as far as it could go. And then I, I needed to move on. I started selling makeup at Patricia Field on 8th Street. So Patricia Field is a uh, pretty well-respected costume designer, and she did all the costumes for Sex and the City when it was a TV show. She's not involved in the current series. But back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, she had this really kind of avant-garde, sexy kind of store on 8th Street that had people like Daphne working there, but then also like amazing club kids and drag queens and yeah. transvestites and like people from like all walks of life. I mean, this mm. was an incredible time for kind of creativity, right? Yeah. And you bought your clothes on the street. Totally. You had to like basically like stick them in bleach and yeah. everything was uh, distressed because, you know, I didn't have any kind of means to get the first the take a Veneta bag. So it yeah. had to be distressed. It had right. to be a busted ass leather jacket. Yeah. I'm just hearing the, all this and to think about how different, you know, I mean, the 90s, yes, they're a long time ago, but they're not that long ago. No. And to, right? Not and when you're me. <laughs> <laughs> but to think how radically different New York was then. Girl, right, please. That that Patricia Field could have that kind of a store on Eighth Street. That all these clubs could exist, and everyone from all over the city would go there. Right. Everyone mm -hmm. sort of talks about Studio Fifty Four, but actually, these clubs and this period had that same kind of sort of diversity and like this great wildness to the yeah. city. The Pyramid Boy Bar. Yeah, yeah. The boy that's bar, where my God. that's where yeah. shit really got made. You yeah. know, that's where things were really getting done. That's where people were grabbing garbage bags and making clothes and repurposing, as we say, yeah. Yeah. bespoking everything. Right. You know? right, and because of the mix of people that were there, someone could make a garbage bag and make it out of a dress, and some huge fashion exec could be at the same place. And like sign the the person up to to become a designer. Like there were so many possibilities and opportunities, and and you know sort of getting to rent. It there there is that sense of something sort of boiling underneath the surface. Mm. And well, there's a direct you know relationship. I mean. Daphne sang in a girl group. Daphne learned how to perform in front of people, you know, despite the adversity of teen clubs with shootouts. I mean, the 90s also, it's interesting, like, you know, Pajama Party plays the gay club in Brooklyn, and it's a love fest, you know? There are drag queens there to embrace us and teach us how to really apply the makeup right. Uh -huh. And then there's the <laughs> teen club, you know, a week later in the Bronx, and it just so happened, and I'm 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 saying this with no judgment, but this like this this is facts. Teen clubs uh back in the 90s were the clubs where there would be guns and violence, and inadvertently somebody would have to hit the deck and stop the show. I mean oh that happened God. more than once. So that kind of education, yeah, that was an education. 
to learn how to navigate different kinds of worlds was actually a, a possibility and a tool, a survival skill. Yes. A learning yes. curve. And you right. learn how to be in the same space with different people before, you know, it was sort of like pre-everybody striving to be in a 1%. Yeah, people believed in something called uh, selling out, you know? People believe, that, yeah, and that, that brings us to rent, where it was like, I'd rather make my own clothes than, you know, buy them from somebody who does not know my life, who took a picture of somebody, you know, and then had somebody else make it, right? Like everything about that smacks of not me. Um, and then the next thing, it was almost like this narcosis of, wait a minute, everyone's doing it. What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Like you need to right, get with right. it. Well, you have two sort of rent maniacs on, on the line here. Tell us how you first, so you're, you were in this girl group, you're working at Pat Fields, you're living in New York in the nineties. When does this musical, you know, based on La Boheme, written by Jonathan Larson, when do you start hearing about it? It was 90, I want to say like 92, 93. At this juncture, I had left Pat, or I was kind of still, you know, in there. But um, I, was, I was in a comedy group called El Barrio USA, and we did comedy shows at Caroline's. And remember, oh my God, please don't forget, Doff. Not the bottom line, but the bitter, not the bitter end, but uh, the Village Gate. Oh, sure. Do you remember the Village Gate? Of course. Art DeLugoff's Village Gate. You know, for, for you listeners out there, we're talking old New York. So, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> old, old Greenwich Village, the mm -hmm. Village Gate, Art DeLugoff on Bleecker Street. And so I had experienced singing and like, like it stirred me. I, I wanted to make music. So I started to like really want to write music and sing. And I was making underground music and I was making these club singles with a group called the Dow and Danny Teneglia and trying to stick oh in the God. club scene and keep my acting separate. And I was studying with Bill Esper at the Bill Esper. You know, I just wanted, I didn't think that musical theater was legit. It was just wasn't my wheelhouse. And I, and I say that knowing that, um, you know, I was totally ignorant. But the idea of doing a rock musical based on level M, like, was thrilling. And, like, okay, that, anyway, so she said it was a rock musical based on level M, except that Mimi wasn't a seamstress with, you know, uh, in the, like, you know, a, a consumptive seamstress. She was a junkie stripper with... AIDS and I was like like let's go and it was one thing that like because I didn't have that pedigree and it was one like graced instance where what I did have and the skill set that I did have was appropriate to the job so you know at the audition because it was in the context of musical theater there was a lot of you know, people singing in that place. And um, even the demo tape was sung like that. And I just thought, like, that's 
not the way it should be done, right? What were they singing on the demo tape? Songs from Rent? or There was songs? a song, like I went in and my audition was Roxanne by the police. <laughs> well, it was a lot of like, 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 a lot of yeah, like scratch hot, you know, belty high, you know, emotional. So, yeah. So he said, you know what? Come back, but learn this song. And um, and it was sung sung very properly. There actually, I think there was an iteration where Jonathan Larson sang it, and I was like, I I I, I don't get it, you know. Yeah. And wait, like, what was that song that he was singing? Out tonight. Oh, okay. It, it was out tonight. Okay. That's Mimi's big number. Yeah, one of Mimi's yeah. I had to come numbers. in and yeah. sing out tonight, and you know, and it was another it was another decision that like. I might not get this because I'm not getting anything. Like I was maybe coming close to stuff, but nothing, you know? And I thought, well, my biggest regret is walking out of a room, not giving a full me because I think that they want something that's not me. And in this case, I'm going to give them full daft. And if they don't like it, at least they know what full Daphne is. Right. So tell us about the very first audition, because I'm curious how many you actually had. The very fa- first audition, when you show up, uh, you had four, four auditions. Okay. Four but five. the very first one, who who's there? Set set the scene for us. Because I always find it really interesting, like how you were feeling, how you prepared, yeah. who was there, where was it? Was it at the New York Theater Workshop? I think it was somewhere else. Not the New York Theater Workshop yet. But, but in another space. And Jonathan was there. Uh, Michael Greif was there. Tim Weil mm-hmm. was there. Who and who's the musical- Tim? Tim Weil is the musical director. Okay. And Jim Nicola. The very first audition I had was with a woman named Wendy Ettinger. She is no longer, she was like a, she was a casting director for a hot moment. She's a Renaissance woman with many lives. And for Mm -hmm. that moment in time, she was, she was the one who brought me in to be seen before Bernie. Okay. uh, Bernie Telsey. Oh, okay. Yes, of course. What were you wearing for your first interview? Were you in full Mimi character? Yeah. I was like, I'm Mimi. I know Mimi. You know, that's the thing. Like You're trying to act like you know Mimi. I know Mimi. So um, I didn't I didn't wear the blue pants yet, but I had this uh, I had this tendency to like sometimes get into these um, altercations at Patfield. This is great. Pat's going to hear this (laughs) and laugh. And I would get really upset and then take something. Oh, (laughs) okay. I love it. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. I would just take it and uh-huh. wear it. Uh-huh. Wear it to the club. Uh-huh. And then feel so bad, I'd just bring it back. So God knows there were so many funky-ass clothes. <laughs> you weren't the only one doing that, by the way. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, that, like, I Pat Field was basically a closet. Yeah. Everyone was like, girl, did you, uh-huh. you know, like, yeah. But uh, so so I digress. Um, I wore fishnet stockings that were ripped baby fishnets ripped and over like like high-waisted like Uh, pulled all the way up so that you could see the catholic school skirt uh you know uh, uh, that was just um underneath it 
you know, probably like at that time, not the combat boot, but like a Chelsea boot or uh-huh. like, you know, one of those, like, you know, like, like the rubber, the rubber boots that they used to have at Trash and Vaudeville. Oh my God, Trash and Vaudeville. <laughs> I mean, we should just do a yeah. podcast on 80s, 90s New York. I mean, honey, I am in yeah. there. Yeah. I am yeah. so in there. Trash and Vaudeville. Um, so you were, you, you had Mimi fully fleshed out in your mind. The fishnets went to Broadway. Yeah, no, the fishnets and also the spandex, because the spandex was new. Like, you know, the, the holograph spandex, <laughs> you know, the David Dalrymple high-waisted. So I just basically took those high-waisted spandex and Angela went, just cut them down. Because the 90s, we went from like neon in the 80s to like ass crack in the 90s. I remember that was like a huge, like everything was like butt crack. You know, yeah. and like, like you could see like the love handles. Yeah, crack is oh. whack. Remember the big crack mural is totally on the FDR. I mean, that's what Keith Haring was talking about. Crack is whack. And then, yeah, that was the, I was totally giving, but like you know, not butt crack, but yeah, that that look. You know what I'm talking about? That way, way like ultra low waisted. Celine rocked that. Yeah, I bet you did. I wish I could have. Wait, so Daphne, you go in for four or five auditions. Do they yes. keep giving you different songs to sing? Or are you singing out tonight in different ways? That's a good question. And I really wish that I remembered accurately. But I think it was sing this diff- this song. Okay. Sing another song. Okay. Were there lots of notes during the interview in these subsequent uh, auditions? N- not with me. I think that what they thought was, yeah, there's somebody who knows that world, but does she have the discipline? Uh-huh. <laughs> right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Each time you're going back, are you thinking, I'm going to get this? Are you thinking, I better freaking get this? What, what, as each time you go back, sort of, what is your attitude going into the room? You know, it depends. I think, you know, I'd like to say that my attitude was like, I got this. This is me. Yeah. Um, This is me. But, you know, I get that. I have that attitude and don't get things. (laughs) Right. So and then like the more you get called back, the more the closer you get, the further away you're like, just just fucking make the decision. God damn it. You know what I mean? Like Mimi to me was a kind of human being that I could have been if I hadn't had grace in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, if I hadn't had, if I hadn't been plucked out of certain fires, Mimi would have been like a little more close to the bone. You know what I mean? I took advantage of that, you know? And I think that that's in the end, what really was like the acid test. Well, I think your personal experience probably gave your audition a level of authenticity that the other actresses didn't have. I mean, you, I mean, it sounds to me like you lived, you sort of, I mean, you weren't a junkie stripper, but having worked but at I that field. I knew a whole lot of them. <laughs> I mean, please, like junkie strippers left and right i mean this early 90s New i mean York, i grew right? up in the village and i grew up in a in an environment that 
would now be called so ultra permissive. You know, I grew up with parents that were like, I'm not condoning this, but this is what's happening in the world. And if you're going to do it, do it at home, you know, and do it protected. And I want to know where you are doing it. Like tell the truth before you start lying. You know, Um, if you're going to have sex, be responsible and to live in the village in the seventies and eighties and not, you know, at least be in spaces where you were forced to be an ally, whether you wanted to be an ally or not, like to learn how to like actually what it's like to live with other human beings and accept them as what they are. You were an ally because you were there and you were human and you had a heart and a soul and you understood the people around you. And a lot of rent is about that too. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and to, to do that with, you know, also, you know, including what was happening in New York with the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. I think that what the real success factor of a lot of these um, pieces of that time also, like, you know, I think about angels in America or, you know, pieces of, of theater and film of entertainment that really hit you and, you know, hit the spot Um are not so much about like things that happened or big times, but about like the kind of love and community that the the connection that happens as a result of some of these crises to the degree that, that we lock into that community is the degree of healing or like getting the story. And I think that Rent really succeeded because it really it's shine. It's it's most brilliant shiny part was love. Like it really, really. There was so much love, like real love. Um, and and it reads. You know, you can't you can't really um. You can't buy it. Daphne, you mentioned before that you were wondering whether they thought you had the discipline. If you got this role, whether you had the discipline to sort of do it, because you're not one of these. You know. Juilliard trained, blah, blah, blahs, who have done like, you know, a million musical theater performances, et cetera. When you got to the workshop and you read the script and you're like in this real production, what it, what was it like for you? Did you, did, were you like a fish to water and it just kind of felt right? Or was there a big learning curve? I say this also when I think of the word ally, like, you know, it's not for me to say it's, it's for, it's for someone else to call me that. And it's for someone else, you know, like you'd have to ask Michael Greif that question. Like, did I take to it? Well, what I can say is that I wanted to please, I wanted, I was so desperate to, to, to do it right, to be good. And so as a result, in a lot of you know, probably young, young actors on Broadway can tell you, particularly dancers, that it's like, you know, to do full out eight shows a week, you know, and rehearsal, like will do a number on your body, you know. So here I am 25 years later, and it's like, I sit down and go, (laughs) but yeah, the, the desire to to pursue whatever that excellence was. I was in a space and, and rent was the space where um, 
I also think I did have a sort of attitude of what needs to be done. I'll do it. Like in the girl group, it was like, I'll choreograph, you know, I was just looking at like old choreography and it's like, it's a lot of this, you know, uh-huh. it's a lot of, yeah. it's a lot that- of grinding and you know, you know, classic. it's classic, yeah. right? It gets your attention. It works. Yeah. You know, real rudimentary stuff. Right. So I think that I, I had the desire to just, just do it, you know, just fake it till you make it. And like the world is your teacher. Daphne, for a lot of people, the audition process is a mystery. And what also they find so intriguing is the moment you find out you got a part. Will you tell us with something like Mimi, which has touched so many people, when was the moment you found out Mimi was going to be a part of your life? Well, I did um, a workshop in 94 with, you know, a different Roger and Anthony Rapp was in it. A few of the actors were in it, but it was a different quote unquote iteration. Um, And then in 90. What did I just say? That was 94. So 95 came around again. It was like, you're going to have to audition. You're not being offered this role. You're going to have to audition another three or four times. Um, A lot of people are really, um, you know, their eyes are on it. Because Uh, now money's involved. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, it it was a workshop. Not sure if it was going to move, but I guess they had their eyes on it. And nothing is guaranteed, but Mm -hmm. Michael would lovingly, and so would Jonathan. I'd call Jonathan and be like, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to learn? Well, you need to learn how to sing a ballad. It's called Without You. And it. don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I've never sung a ballad before. Don't worry about it. Just make me cry. (laughs) I'd be like, okay, just make Jonathan cry. And Michael Greif, who I'd been in it, who I was working with at the time, was saying, you know, did you work on it? Are you working on it? With Jonathan's direction to you of Just Make Me Cry, what was your approach to the song? How did you do it? Do you remember, like, what, what did you think that song needed? How did you get those tears? Well, I had heard other people say, and I learned it, like, you know, I said uh, that the whole world teaches you. And um, and I really strongly think that like bad acting is really educational. When you see somebody suck and, and it's it's kind of, it's embarrassing, it's painful. It's, it gives you like the, ooh. Um, so, so by that, Bad acting hurts. You as know, much as like, good, yeah, bad acting scars you and you know never to do it again. Whereas well, good acting inspires see, you, right? you never yeah. know when you're the one. Like, I, <laughs> I can't tell you. I don't know when I'm acting badly. You know, I know when it feels like acting, but that doesn't mean that it's not effective. It's really tricky, right? Um, but I know what telling the truth is. I do know what that is. And so that's what I stuck with. You know, like the childbirth, like just focus on the breath, you know, like just focus on like a pinpoint of breath. So I just focused on telling the truth with every word I said and every line. That's basically my um, my go-to strategy. 
when I doubt, like, okay, what, what the fuck am I saying and why? It's like, just know what you're saying and why and mean it. And that was my way of getting him to cry. And I think I did. I think I did. So I felt like they were rooting for me, but nothing was guaranteed. And so I had auditions. I finally did. I went up there. I sat down. I sang the song. I did the damn thing. I was, I walked down the stairs, like right next door, Fourth Street, you know, the rehearsal hall. And I walked down and I don't know if I made it to the bottom of the stairs before J Jim Nicola came after me and like called after me and from the top of the stairs said, I just want you to know that you got the role. Just so you don't have to worry about it anymore. Cause it was after like four auditions, right? Like they kept calling me back and calling me back. And I was like, fucking gonna do this. I'm gonna fucking do green. You want me to do yellow? I'll do pink, you know, anything. And so he's just like, I just want you to know you got the role. And I'll never forget walking down fourth street. Like with that information, behind me in my wake and walking towards um, knowing that my life would be different. Of course, I had no clue how, <laughs> but that like I was in its purest way, like doing what I wanted to do, like the gift of being able to inhabit a role where you can tell the world about a person was the greatest gift ever. It was the greatest gift. Daphne, of course, part of the story of Rand is, is Jonathan Larson. And, you know, I was telling William before, I remember being in a cab and hearing on the radio um, that he had died. And, you know, Rent was very much sort of a part of my consciousness because of the, the story and because, you know, I had seen it and was going to see it again. For someone that was a part of it from the very beginning, do you sort of see almost the performance in the experience as before and after? Did it alter it for you? Oh. Yeah, no, it it um, cha it changed it completely. You know, it was a little show that could, and there was a buzz about it. But I mean, Jonathan died on its birthday at the invited dress rehearsal, mm. right? So he he saw the first ever performance of it going from beginning to end in hair and makeup without stopping ever. We had never done it before from beginning to end completely the way you see it now. That was the first time he saw it and then he died. And the next night was supposed to be opening night. So that changed everything. Absolutely. There was like the sense of, yeah, we're ready for opening night, but you know, the process is we'll still have time to tweak and adjust because there's a lot of still, you know, there's work to be done. Um, and so, you know, the idea, I mean, this came later, the idea of like, who's going to help us do that and how appropriate is it to do that was, you know, questions that weren't answered by me, but they were, 
happening. So I think that we wanted to honor, like I was saying before, like use every word to represent, to invoke, to honor. You know, all of a sudden, like the way the way a tragedy and hardship will, you know, galvanize. You. I can't think of a better word to a, a purpose. You know, we did have the purpose. William, can we just talk about the full DAF? One hundred percent major full DAF. Hashtag full DAF. Hashtag inspiration. <laughs> hashtag give me some of that. Hashtag I think everybody needs to know when to bring out the full DAF in themselves. I could not agree more. There's something so powerful about knowing when to just bring it, when not to compromise, and when not to hold back. It's such an important lesson, and Daphne knew it, and we all got to witness and love Hermini as a result of the full DAF. Lucky us, right? Oh, no, and she also told us she might not be done with Rent. That was a very exciting little moment. She says she wants to direct a production one day. I'd buy tickets right now. Also, all of you listening should buy some tickets to go see a show. Go see an old favorite again. Go see the amazing new shows by playwrights on Broadway. Support Broadway. Let them know how much we miss them. Thank you all for listening to the audition. You can follow Daphne on Instagram at Daphne Rubin Vega. And you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on Instagram at The Audition Podcast. We'll be back soon. With more audition stories and more incredible guests. The audition is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Kahn for Freetime Media with me, William Lee. And me, Staline Volandis. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Danielle Thomas, Bailey Jones, Scott Pask, Justin Robertson, and Lauren Tappan. And to Martinis. To Martinis, to be clear. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>